You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go, it's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know, goodbye Piccadilly. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 142. This is our fourth and final episode on the Nivelle Offensive of 1917, and it will also be quite a bit shorter than the previous two episodes, so just be warned. Today we will cover what happened after the first day of attacks on the Western Front. After these attacks fail, we will then transition to the political arena to look at how Nivelle tried to deal with the criticism of the French government and was then replaced as French commander by General Patan. This will run us right into the French Mutiny, which will be happening during some of the time period that we will discuss today. I have decided to split it out into its own separate episode, though, and we'll be shifting all discussion of the Mutiny until next episode. Just note that it will be happening during many of the political conversations that were occurring in Paris before Nivelle was replaced, which I think gives a bit of important background information. The biggest question after the first day of the attack was what to do next. The plan had to change, and Nivelle's initial response was to order a renewed attack with the 5th Army as the focus. Nivelle was also trying to reorient the entire offensive to focus on the right-hand side of the original objectives. This would have been a challenge in the best of conditions, but the weather was making it more difficult. Overnight, there had been a heavy rain at the front, making troop movements difficult, and it would generally add to the fatigue and low morale that the men were already experiencing. Nobody likes to do anything while being rained on. This would just make it more difficult to continue the next day's attacks. A decision was made by General Mischler that would be critical to the upcoming action. Mischler was an overall command of the three armies that were executing the offensive on the Shem de Dom, and he refused to push more divisions into the forward armies. These divisions were available behind the front in the 10th Army, but it was waiting to exploit the theoretical hole that the 5th and 6th Armies would create in the German lines. 
Mishler adamantly refused to start robbing the 10th Army of divisions because the entire purpose of the attack was to get those divisions through the German lines and into open country. If they were used during the breakthrough attempt, there would be nothing left to push past the lines, meaning that the offensive would be completely pointless anyway. Even without the extra troops, though, the attack would continue at 4.45 a.m. on April 17th. With the weather problems and just the general problems of continuing an attack, the artillery support available was far less effective than on the previous day. This made any advances by the infantry difficult, slow, and costly. While overall the results that were achieved were negligible, the Germans did withdraw from a part of the front. If you remember, there was a part of the front where the German lines ran east-west and jutted out into French territory, sort of like an elbow. On the 17th, they began to pull back from this area to shorten their lines and make their defensive situation easier. The French would put pressure on the Germans while they pulled back, eventually gaining seven kilometers of territory. It should just be emphasized this was a voluntary withdrawal, though. It was not forced by a French attack. The Germans just did it to make their situation a little easier. With the second day of attacks not resulting in any huge gains, the expectations at all levels of French command began to drop precipitously. On the 19th, Nivelle would have Michelin commit the 10th Army fully onto the front to try and get the attack moving again, giving up on the larger strategic plan that had been driving the offensive up to this point and throughout all the planning stages. During this period, attacks were constantly scheduled, cancelled, changed, and rescheduled as Nivelle and his staff tried to determine some way of resolving the problems they were facing. The clock was also ticking for Nivelle. Even if the political leaders in Paris would not strictly hold to his 48-hour promise, it did set certain expectations that were now not being met. What was actually happening at this point, and what many people could see and what everybody feared, was that this attack was turning into exactly what the previous French offensives had been, an endless slog with heavy casualties and very few real gains. Then the attack would eventually fail when the French ran out of men to feed into the meat grinder. We now know that the attack had failed, but the French did not know for sure at this time, and then discussion became what they should do next. Nivelle first had to go to Paris, where he would meet with President Rebeau and Poincaré to discuss the situation. Pressure had been mounting on Nivelle for several days, as it became clear to everybody that plans had to change. Nivelle was unwilling to admit that his offensive had completely failed, even though by now the entire reserve army group had been committed to the attack, leaving no maneuver group to exploit the further offensives, even if the initial attacks were successful. During the meeting, Nivelle was still trying to hide the severity of the failure from the politicians. He knew that his own credibility with both the government and the soldiers was rapidly falling apart, but he still hoped that a success would be able to turn the situation around. Ribot and Poincaré both knew that the attacks had not gone well, even if they did not know the precise details of how poorly it was really going, and they were gravely concerned about morale at the front and throughout the nation when everybody learned about what was happening. They would plead with Nivelle to minimize further losses, even if he could not fully call off the further attacks. Over the next few days, Nivelle would go to each army group commander and essentially admit defeat. I'm sure that it was quite humiliating. He was basically switching over to a series of limited offensives. These smaller attacks would only be launched after intense artillery preparations, which were strictly an effort to reduce casualties. For those keeping track, this was basically exactly the kind of attack Patan had been advocating for all through the planning in early 1917. 
While these attacks were launched, the results were still pretty disappointing. And this is when the morale of the French army would really begin to collapse. Everybody at the front knew that these limited attacks were pointless, especially when weighed against the successes that had been promised to them. So in general, the French soldiers were not putting their best effort into the new offensives. This would also be the point that Nivelle's situation would begin to fall apart, almost completely. Discontent was beginning to spread in the army, and the concerns back in Paris were increasing by the day, with flames fanned by reports from the army groups about the situation at the front. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. April 24th would be an important day because it would be on this day that the government began to seriously discuss replacing Nivelle as commander. When this discussion took place, it was attended by Poincaré, Ribot, Painleave, and Admiral Lucien Lacaze, the Minister of the Navy. Painleave was the leader of the calls for his replacement, and he would cite reports that were arriving from Army and Army Group commanders as evidence that the Army had completely lost faith in Neville as a commander. There were also several reports of soldiers also losing most of their confidence. While no final decision was made, they resolved to call another meeting for the next day, and with Nivelle in attendance, they would discuss future plans. At this meeting, Nivelle briefed the politicians on plans for four more attacks at the end of April, but these were not the sweeping plans of earlier months, but limited attacks with limited goals. These plans were approved, at least in concept, with more details requested for final approval later in the month. This was, of course, not the primary purpose of the meeting, and Painleave quickly jumped into the juicy bits. Painleave had been communicating as much as possible with the Army and Army Group commanders of the front, asking their opinions on Nivelle and their general levels of trust in his plans. He told Nivelle point-blank that his commanders had lost faith. Nivelle, of course, was not exactly thrilled to hear this, but not for the reasons you may think. Instead of being angry about the content of the messages, he was instead furious that they were sent at all. He demanded that he be informed about who had talked to Painleave so that they could be properly punished for going to the civilian authorities. After the meeting, Nivelle and Painleave would meet privately, and Painleave broached the subject of replacing Nivelle, with Nivelle agreeing to resign if it was requested by the government. 
Also, after the meeting, Nivelle began to try and shift blame for the failure to his subordinates. The first victim to fall was General Manjim. Nivelle would blame him for the failure of the attack and would dismiss him from his command of the 6th Army. Now, this was not the first time that Mangan had been removed from his command, and don't worry, he will return to our story later when he gets another army to command. Nivelle also tried to blame Mishler. Mishler had the advantage of being on record at some length in his belief that the attack had been a mistake from the beginning and that it would end poorly. And now, as Nivelle tried to shift the blame onto him, Mishler would respond by saying, What, you try to make me responsible for the mistake when I never ceased to warn you? Do you know what such an action is called? It is called cowardice. While Payne, Leave, Poincare, and Rabot were not quite to the point of replacing Nivelle, they were going to start making some changes. The largest of these was the appointment of Patan as Nivelle's chief of staff. This appointment would serve two purposes. First, it would put somebody on Nivelle's staff that the political leaders knew had opinions that were very much not in line with Nivelle's, hopefully to act as a counterbalance because everybody knew Patan would definitely speak up if, if he wanted to. Second, Patan was basically guaranteed to succeed Nivelle. Even Nivelle knew that it was just a matter of time by this moment. Nivelle actually supported the move under the belief that it would give him some time to step away gracefully. While Patan would benefit from the plan, he initially did not want to support it, because he did not believe that Nivelle should remain in command any longer than he already had been. Patan was eventually convinced and would take the position of Chief of Staff on April 29th. With this appointment, Patan was now also involved with all the meetings with the political leadership, which meant that he was at the next meeting on May 4th. And during this meeting, who also attended by Italian, Russian, and British representatives, Patan would downplay the French failures, but he would admit that there was no possibility of a breakthrough or a larger strategic success. While Nivelle believed that the appointment of Patan would give him some breathing room, the transition was about to occur far quicker than he had hoped. The hammer would fall on May 10th, when the Council of Ministers agreed with Painleave's request for Nivelle's immediate removal. In these situations, the person who is asked to resign generally would, but in this case, Nivelle would refuse. He would tell one government official that they want my hide, but neither my dignity, nor my conscience, nor my sense of what I owe my country permits me to play their game. This put a spanner in the works, and it was something that was not really expected, and so five days would go by where Nivelle would stay in command while Poincare and Painleave sorted out just how to remove him. On the 15th of May, he was named as an army group commander, but with every army group currently having a commander, he was instead put on leave and then later dismissed. That is not where the story of Nivelle's removal ends, though. Patan would arrive at headquarters on May 17th to officially take command, and at that point Nivelle would officially resign. But instead of promptly leaving, Nivelle would just sort of hang around for a few days. He would in fact not leave until May the 19th. He had nothing further to do at headquarters, and nobody seems to know why he stuck around, but he didn't leave. When he would leave, he just sort of exits our story. In December 1917, he would be posted to North Africa, which basically removed him from the war. Before we end today, we need to talk about the costs of the spring 1917 Entente offensives for both sides. While the French and British experienced their own singular actions, for the Germans they were forced to absorb six weeks of large Entente attacks. The Germans had stopped them, again, but they had also been quite costly, again. In total, the Germans would suffer somewhere around 165,000 casualties. 
In his book, The German Army in the Spring Offensives of 1917, Jack Sheldon would say that, quote, During a six-week period, OHL had rotated no fewer than 70 divisions into the front line along the Western Front. They were all to a greater or lesser extent worn down. There were no completely fresh formations, and the British, having continued to press hard and sacrificially east of Arras, were about to begin major operations in Flanders. Furthermore, both the field and foot artillery was still committed to action on both army group fronts, and expenditure of ammunition continued to be prodigious. There simply was no possibility of creating the size of fully supported attacking force necessary to make an impact on the French army and to exploit this opportunity, end quote. Now, this opportunity is what he's talking about is the mutiny, which we will discuss in a bit. These attacks basically put the Germans into a position where they were unable to do anything meaningful on the Western Front for the rest of the year. This is critical when you consider how vulnerable the French army was after the attacks. This is a situation that Ludendorff would address after the war in his memoirs. The French offensive had been smashed in an extraordinarily bloody fashion, and the mood of France was subdued. In July, the Minister of War admitted the offensive had failed with such high casualties that it could never be repeated. The defeat was so great that the morale of the army began to suffer and mutinies broke out. However, information about them was scanty and only gradually came to our attention. Only later did we have a clear picture. With the three years of relentless Entente attacks not yet over, there was still hell to pay in Flanders later in the year, these experiences would greatly influence the German plans for 1918 as they desperately tried to find a way to break the cycle of endless siege in the West. For the French, the attack had been a disaster, both in terms of morale and in terms of casualties. In the nine days between April 16th and 25th, when the offensive was still being pressed hard by the French, they would suffer 134,000 casualties. This would make it the worst month of the war since November 1914 for the French army. It was worse than any of the complete failures of 1915, worse than any single month of Verdun or on the Somme. And when you add this number to the 160,000 casualties experienced by the British, it becomes apparent how huge the failure really was. For the French, the problems ran far deeper than just numbers. By the end of the month, reports were trickling back from the front that troops were resisting orders to move forward. There were troops shouting peace, down with the war, and death to those responsible. The French army, or at least pieces of it, were starting to mutiny, and it was only going to get worse. That will be our story for next episode, as parts of the French army descend into anarchy after three years of relentless sacrifice, and the man entrusted with putting the pieces back together and saving the French army would be Patan. Goodbye,